from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. In the county, uh, we found 998 restricted subdivisions covering 60,000 parcels, which is probably over three quarters of the property base in St. Louis County in 1940. So almost everything in the county built between about 1905 and 1950 is restricted. Shamia Reese, she actually wants to frame it. She wants to frame it and hang it in her home because to her, it's a reminder of the systemic racism that her elder relatives had to go through. I'm Sarah Fenske. One of the many vestiges of racial discrimination in St. Louis just might be in a document tied to the deed of your home. Restrictive covenants tied to the deeds in homes across the city barred homeowners selling or renting to black people, Jewish people, or others. Shamia Reese owns a home in the Jeff Vanderloo neighborhood of North St. Louis. She shared with St. Louis Public Radio's Corinne Ruff her reaction to the restrictive covenant on her home's deed. To know that I own a property that has this language in the original deed, it's heartbreaking. But then I'm grateful that I'm there. This is the part of history that doesn't change. And so when people say we don't have to deal with our past, this right here lets you know that we definitely have to deal with it. And that is Shamia Reese. Now, those covenants are unenforceable. The U.S. Supreme Court made that clear in a landmark 1948 case, battled over a covenant right here in St. Louis. Still, their legacy continues. Kalila Jackson is a senior attorney at the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. She explained what it was like to see the covenant language in black and white for the first time. It does some violence to your soul to see that no Negroes or no Jewish people allowed, that does a certain violence to one's spirit. And I just could not imagine purchasing a home, being so excited, or even looking at a prospective home and taking a look at these documents and realizing that this was a place that you aren't, maybe not now, but at least at some point, you were not welcome in. And that is attorney Kalila Jackson speaking with Corinne Ruff of St. Louis Public Radio. Even today, Colin Gordon believes that roughly 30,000 properties in the city of St. Louis have such deeds attached to them. Gordon is a professor of history at the University of Iowa. He has been working to quantify these covenants in St. Louis and explore how the patterns of segregation they created continues to this day. And he joins us now. So Colin Gordon, welcome back. Nice to be back. And uh, those covenants are the focus of a story published today by St. Louis Public Radio. That story came in collaboration with NPR and other member stations. That includes WBEZ in Chicago and KPBS and iNews Source in San Diego. The St. Louis story was authored by St. Louis Public Radio economic development reporter Corinne Ruff, and she is here as well. Corinne, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Corinne, these covenants haven't been enforceable for decades now. Most people don't even know they're there. What made this such a focus for NPR and for you? 
Yeah, it's, it's such a great question because a lot of these documents were put in place almost 100 years ago now. Um, and so really, you know, the, the idea for this story came from Cheryl Thompson. She's a senior editor and investigative correspondent at NPR. And she runs a unit that's really trying to create more collaborative projects for member stations across the country. And so she had been looking at some cases where there were some cemeteries that were white-only cemeteries. Mm-hmm. And then she started talking to some folks in Kansas City area, actually, found a city council member for a suburb outside Kansas City who had been looking into whether she could have backyard chickens. And as she was looking into whether she could do that, she found this really, you know, restrictive and offensive language and and thought, you know, I I need to do something about this. So, you know, Cheryl really came up with a story and was like, hey, these are are everywhere. This is a great opportunity to work with reporters from across the country, which is great. I mean, St. Louis is a great example of racial covenants here for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, um, and, and I'm sure we'll get more into the history, but it's the backdrop of a, the landmark 1948 case that you mentioned where the Supreme Court ruled that states could not enforce racial covenants. So we've got that history here. St. Louis is also very starkly segregated as a city. I mean, people know of the Del Mar Divide really just showing the stark inequality racially and economically within this city. Um, And then the other reason why in St. Louis is that we happen to have a lot more information than a lot of other cities have about these racial covenants. And so, you know, as an economic development reporter, I was really interested in connecting the dots between what racial wealth inequality looks like today, why our neighborhoods and investment in them look so different as you drive around the city, and connecting it back to this history. And so, you know, very quickly I I learned about Colin's research and it was just perfect timing that he was quantifying how many racial covenants exist in this city, um, which is actually fantastic because most cities it's very, very difficult because the record-keeping practices differed and, you know, they don't have them digitized, so it can be very difficult to do that work. So you mentioned that St. Louis, we know more about how many are here and and what form they took than other places. Is that because of Colin's research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it really all the credit goes to Colin and the team that he worked with um, to come up with that information because otherwise it's more of a black box. I mean, you can go through, you can check your D. There are definitely cases of people who have sent me their own personal records, but it's a very time-consuming and difficult process to do if you have no idea where to start. So, Colin, you have talked about this on this show before, but this is so interesting. I want to just remind people, you were able to kind of hit the mother load in terms of understanding what had happened with these covenants. How were you able to get information that made this so much easier to get your head around than so many other places where they've struggled to do that? Um, Well, Corinne is exactly right. I mean, the, the much of the research, the new research on restricted covenants, uh, such as the landmark project in Minneapolis, Mapping Prejudice, rely on digitized and typed records, so a computer can do the searching for you. Um, in St. Louis and St. Louis County, not only are the records not digitized, but they're handwritten into the 1950s. Um, so we were trying to replicate what they had done in Minneapolis. And my colleague, uh, Peter Hoffman at Legal Services of Eastern Missouri, stumbled across at one of the big title companies, an independent index that the title company had kept of all the restrictions in the city. Hmm. So, I mean, it's a non-starter to just start leafing through the deed books page by page because we're talking about millions of pages over a 50-year period. But this index identified in the record exactly where the restrictions existed, and we just had to go in, uh, verify them, 
make a copy, and then map them across the city. And so the last time we talked to you, you'd been uh, working hard to do that in the city. That work is now also underway in the county? Yeah, we're almost uh, done in the county. And the... um, I mean, in the city, we found uh, about 750 independent restrictive agreements covering about 30,000 parcels, which would be between a quarter and a third of the city's property base uh, in 1940. In the county, uh, we found 998 restricted subdivisions covering 60,000 parcels, which is probably over three quarters of the property base in St. Louis County in 1940. So much of a majority of the land in the county yes. was covered by these. Yes. And I mean, this um, dovetails with what we know about the role that suburbanization and the fragment municipal structure in St. Louis County played in the local history of segregation. How so? Well, in, in the sense that um, moving out into the county and uh, creating these like suburban enclaves in the county um, was r- largely an exercise in white flight. And the fragmented uh, sort of patchwork of municipalities in the county really largely exist so that those municipalities can control land use. Uh, One thing that we found that was very interesting in the county is that um, some of the more, some of the densest areas of restriction are now in areas of North County which are largely African American. So Velda Village Hills and Uplands Park and Ferguson, uh, these were communities which were almost Uh, in which the initial subdivisions uh, were almost uniformly restricted with a clause that said wholly of the Caucasian race or uh, no Negroes unless they're domestic servants. And do you see that as a coincidence that today these are the areas that have the highest African-American population? Well, I mean, it's not a a coincidence in the sense that um, the history of restricted covenants in some respects is very much about timing. They were very intensely done at the begin, beginning with the first great migration in the World War I era um, into the 1940s and then ending, of course, with or largely ending with the Shelley versus Kramer case. So what we look for in terms of subdivision restrictions is when were they built. So almost everything in the county built between about 1905 and 1950 is restricted. In fact, we found 60 subdivisions in the county that were restricted after the Shelley versus Kramer decision. Really? And restricted in a way that maybe was being enforced? What's interesting is um, what developers started to do, particularly when they saw um, Shelley uh, wind through the local and then the national court system, was look increasingly to other ways to enforce them. And they used what in property law is called a reversionary clause. So these subdivision agreements would have a whole bunch of restrictions, like what your fence looked like, what your garage looked like. And then it would say, only for residents of the the Caucasian race. And with respect to this restriction, if you violate it, the property reverts back to the developer. You lose your title to the land. So this was a way of of the developer taking some control and maybe trying to stop the sort of case that we saw. Yes. 
Yes. Interesting. So, Corinne, this is actually something that really struck me in your report, is this was not local governments pushing these. These were different actors, developers in this case that Colin was talking about. And as you make clear in your story, in in many cases, real estate agents. Yeah. I mean, these are, you know, going back to, you know, very early um, covenants that were put in place. It was really the real estate board that was going door to door saying, here's this template of a restriction. Please sign it. And, And it's coded in this way of saying we want to preserve the character of this neighborhood for white property owners. We want to protect your property value. And so sign this document to prevent sort of this influx of black residents who are moving, you know, up through like the Great Migration. People are kind of expanding from the Ville, which is this historically black neighborhood. It, you know, it's, it's not big enough for, for everyone who's wanting to live in St. Louis. And so it, it's really a sort of a fear mongering tactic that happens um, where they're going door to door to try to put in this patchwork of restrictions that you can see very clearly in Collins' map. Um, you know, they're, they're very scattered in some ways and in other ways they're very concentrated. Um, but as you mentioned, there's, there's also developers who really looked at southwest St. Louis. And so St. Louis Hills was an area that I really focused in on my piece of, you know, there's multiple different subdivisions that were created and developers have these lengthy documents that say everything from no commercial businesses, no slaughterhouses, your porch can only extend so many feet to only only people of the Caucasian race. It's just kind of wedged in there in a very, you know, run-of-the-mill kind of a way. And so, you know, they, there was different approaches, but this this really was not something that, w- this is something that really was being done by private actors. It's interesting. It seems like in some cases, developers were doing this proactively. In other cases, real estate agents were doing it reactively. But in both cases, it seems to be a reaction. It's that people felt like people are at the door wanting to move into this part of town. Yeah, I think th- I think that's mostly true. But a lot of the subdivision restrictions um, are drawn up in areas that are not facing a threat of racial transition. So it's it's sort of in some areas it's sort of aspirational. It's a mark of exclusion. Mm-hmm. So you know you can have horse stables, but you know you can't have African Americans, kind of thing. Um, and you know, Corinne pointed out an important distinction between two different kinds of restriction. One is what developers or homeowners associations do in new subdivisions. But the other, and again, remember, this is all about timing. Um, Much of the the North St. Louis is all built up by the time covenants are invented. Mm -hmm. And so there, the only recourse is to go door to door. And of the 750 uh, restrictive agreements that we found in the city of St. Louis, over 500 of them are done block by block in a sort of ragged donut around the ville. Wow. That man, that history is so interesting and just so chilling to think of like what it would have been like to be these people trying to circle the wagons. And it's just appalling. And part of what your story um, uh, explores, Corinne, is how people are trying to deal with this terrible history today. Do most people who have these kind of things on their deeds, is this something that they would even be aware of? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, so part of the challenge in this story is a lot of people had no idea. And so, you know, thanks to Colin's work, it was it was very helpful to be able to put a call out like, hey, is anyone willing, anyone who has a home that was built maybe between like 1920, 1940, 45, would you be willing to look at your property records with me? And so I did that with about half a dozen residents. We went to City Hall and yeah, again, the map gave us a shortcut because you can zoom in on where your address is and find the exact information 
information you would need to look up that record at City Hall. And then so you still have to go look it up, You though. still have to go look it up, and but it, it cuts out a huge amount of the time-consuming process. And once you go there, you know, a lot of these documents are still on microfilm. So they got to get out the the big round of the film. They got to wind it up. You got to, you know, figure out how to use this machine that I had never used before. Um, and so it, it, it was really interesting to talk with homeowners who just were completely shocked to know that this something like this was on their property. And I thought it was it was very interesting to talk to people who, you know, now have black relatives in their family. Um, you know, sir, I did talk to black homeowners as well in North St. Louis and just to, to have sort of a range of reactions. Right. <clears throat> Some people are very horrified and immediately want to do something about it. Um, but the homeowner you mentioned at the top of the show, Shamia Reese, she actually wants to frame it. She wants to frame it and hang it in her home because to her, it's a reminder of the systemic racism that her elder relatives had to go through. And so she wants it to be a conversation point. Hmm. So for people who do want to get this off the books and they want to change it, is that easy to do? No. <laughs> uh, it, well, it's complicated, right? So there are some folks who are trying to help people do that. One of them is Cleola Jackson, the uh, senior attorney you mentioned at the top of the show. She's with the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. This is really a personal passion of hers as well, addressing these covenants. And so she's been able to do it. She's actually helped people in this region amend these covenants. Now, the problem in Missouri is there's no specific law or provision that allows you to do this. And so it's a little bit tricky. You also can't just erase documents. The way property records work is once it's there, it's there forever. And so what advocates really want to be able to do is to be able to file a new document within the chain of title that says this racial covenant exists and it's disavowed within the record of this property. Colin, that feels important. I would hate the idea of somebody being able to go into these documents and erase it. Like this shaped how this city was developed. Yeah, and, and, and Corinne's exactly right. That is the standard, not to remove the documents, um, but to give homeowners an opportunity to insert what's often called a discharge petition. Um, the, the other mechanism is, so under Missouri law, homeowners associations are required to remove racially restrictive language without a vote of the... It's, they it's just a, have to do it. They that. have to do it. And most of the subdivisions in St. Louis County and St. Louis City have... Uh, trustees that represent the homeowners, um, and they have a mechanism for making changes to their restrictions. So one argument you could make is that these are effectively homeowners associations, and so all of these subdivision restrictions, um, it would be incumbent upon them to to uh, discharge the the covenant. Okay. But one of the difficult things is that a lot of these are what in property law we call wild deeds. They're not in the chain of title. Um, and so often you'll be you live in a subdivision, but your channel title will just say subject to restrictions of record or these petition covenants were done in North St. Louis are not attached because they're not done at sale. So they're not attached to the chain of title. Um, so often uh, people are unaware that the property ever had this kind of restriction. So, Corinne, as you mentioned, Kalila Jackson is taking this on. And if people are interested in connecting with her to do that, there's a link on your story. Your story is at stlpr.org. I want to encourage people to read this, get all this history for themselves. That link will take you to EHOC's website where you can connect with Kalila about maybe getting this removed. You mentioned in Missouri, this is hard. Have other states made this easier? Some states have. Um, it's, it's not a very widespread thing that states are taking on. But, you know, states like Minnesota. Um, 
Minnesota, where there's the Mapping Prejudice Project, where they have a lot of this data available, um, have made it a bit easier. Even Illinois um, actually signed a bill, the, the Illinois legislature signed a bill earlier this year, which is going go to go into effect in January, which will make it a lot easier for residents. I think it would cost up to $10 for you to get this done. Now, the problem is that if you read my colleagues um, re reporting in WBZ, you know, coming in the next couple of days, you know, the records in Chicago were not digitized. It's a very lengthy process, again, to find that information. So, And they don't have Colin necessarily. They don't have, have Colin. I mean, there's other researchers working on this project all over the country, really. But I think that's one of the key problems still and is, you know, if, if you make this easier, it, it still is a problem if records aren't digitized. It's still going to be kind of a challenge to widespread change on this issue. Well, this has been so interesting to learn about. Corinne Ruff, you did great reporting on this. I really want to encourage people to read your full stories. Those are at stlpr.org. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Corinne is St. Louis Public Radio's economic development reporter. Um, Colin Gordon, thank you so much for joining us as well. Pleasure to be here. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. It was mixed and edited by Jane Mather Glass. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.